When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 19, titled, Here's to You, Mrs. Malaprop, wherein we discuss what a common slip of the tongue might say about our mental lexicon. Yo, Mike, what's happening? Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid, thank you, as always. So uh, I'm holding in my hand right now a really fun book that I read recently. In fact, its official release date is tomorrow, October 16th, and it inspired this week's episode of Lexicon Valley. Oh, yeah. Now, see, hence my splendidosity. <laughs> I know what book you're talking about. Yeah. Because I, what do you call it, wrote it. Yeah. It's a comic crime novel called Bedfellows, and you wrote it. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So I think that you should explain in a few sentences what Bedfellows is about. Can I just say one thing first? Mm -hmm. This is my first novel, but it's not my novel with a capital N. So (laughs) please, I don't want our listeners to judge me that I should finally, after, you know, in my mid-50s, write a novel and it turns out to be this. It's not your great American novel. No, no. I call it a semi-comic, semi-thriller. It was meant, of course, to be a comic thriller, but... Not that funny and not all that exciting. So (laughs) I did my best. You know what happened? I was in the shower and I got this stupid idea. You know, it's in the middle of this economic extremist that we're all going through. And what about the mob? How are they making out? And what steps do they have to take, you know, while the economy is getting back on the rails? And I thought, God, what a great idea for a movie, a down-on-its-luck mob. And I have a friend who is a – he runs a movie studio. And I called him. I said, okay, here's the idea, right? And I tell him. He said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I said, what do you think? He said, uh, yeah, nobody's bought a mob movie in Hollywood since about 1975. So no, but <laughs> he said if you write it as a novel and it's successful, someone might option it and, you know, make a movie of it. So I wrote a novel. You did. And if my name was Harvey Weinstein, I would push this puppy through the Hollywood pipeline. Well, from your lips to God's ears. Well, it's really funny and inventive and probably 
offensive to Italian Americans, wouldn't you say? Uh, I would say probably offensive to Italian Americans, but almost everybody else as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, you know, there's just hardly an ethnicity that is spared from the things that come out of the mouths of these characters. Well, most of them are Italian-American, and the half of me that is Italian-American was very offended, but the half of me that's Jewish loves Italian-American stereotypes. So, <laughs> so there's like a real conflict raging inside me. In fairness, Mike, were there not a significant number of Jewish stereotypes in there as well? Oh, yeah. No, there were. Yeah, It's an equal opportunity outrage. But in any case... What inspired this week's episode is that one of the central characters in the book, the central character maybe, a mafia boss known as Don Donato, makes occasional malapropisms. He uses the wrong word. For example, he refers to Hezbollah as halva, which is a sesame snack. (laughs) And at one point, he uses the word fasciitis when what he means is facetious. Yeah, and he's he has a hard time. I don't know if this is quite a malaprop, but he has a hard time with aphorisms too. He, uh, you know, he gets things a little off, mainly because he sort of conflates one saying with another, and it just leads to a little bit of confusion. Also, a listener of Lexicon Valley wrote recently in an iTunes review that every time he or she listens to an episode of the show, quote. I find myself committing whatever linguistic solipsism was the topic for that day. Now, what that person meant to say was whatever linguistic solipsism. Solipsism, the word they used, is a kind of self-obsession or egocentricity. Solipsism, the word they meant, is a social or grammatical mistake or faux pas. So that's one of the more learned malaprops. This is a guy with a vocabulary that he's almost got command of. Yeah, but do you appreciate the irony of someone (laughs) intending to say solecism and instead committing a solecism by using a malapropism? It's a little delicious, but I got to give him props or malaprops for having any access to both solipsism and solecism. I mean, uh, good for him. It's dangerous using words. So between Don Donato in your book and this Lexicon Valley listener, whom I've now pilloried, but we don't know that person's name, so no harm. So please do write to (laughs) Lexicon Valley and risk having your letter ridiculed on our show. Well, the universe, I think, was telling us that we had to talk about malapropisms. And I think that you're going to learn a few things, Bob, about malapropisms that you might wish you had known before writing Bedfellows. Okay. Well, I'm all ears. Before we talk about what we mean when we call something a malapropism— I think we should first talk about a few things that we don't mean. A few things that are speech errors, but they're not true malapropisms. So in linguistics, there are certain speech errors that are called anticipations. For example, if I wanted to say the early bird gets the worm, but instead I said the burly bird gets the worm, that's because I'm anticipating the B sound in bird and using it too soon. Hence, burly bird. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a a very famous example of this kind of speech error. Once when Ted Kennedy was giving a speech about education, he said, our national interest ought to be to encourage the breast and brightest. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people jumped on that and they said, oh, my God, look at that. It's a Freudian slip. Had Alan Simpson made that mistake, I don't think, you know, anyone would have remembered. But, uh, you know, I think all that happened there was that he was anticipating the BR sound in brightest 
and used it in best. And then there are speech errors that are sort of the opposite of that. They're called perseverations. So, for example, if I wanted to say it's raining cats and dogs, but instead I said it's raining rats and dogs, that's because the R sound from raining is persevering in the next word. I'm not sure that I've ever encountered that, but okay. It's actually not uncommon. So if both of those things happen at the same time, you get into this category of intentionally contorted speech called spoonerisms. Or actually not intentionally. In a spoonerism, you're transposing two sounds from two different words. I remember when I was in middle school, one day I called my friend Ed and his mom answered the phone. She was not a native English speaker. She was from China. And she told me that Ed wasn't in right now. He was outside lowing the mawn. (laughs) And then I made fun of her and I hung up the phone. As one would. Yeah. So another speech error that we wouldn't consider a malapropism is something called a blend. You know, when we're talking, we're constantly making these split second decisions about which words to choose. And sometimes we're choosing between two synonyms. So if I were telling you a story and deciding in the moment between the words leaping and jumping, it might come out lumping. That's called a blend. Now, all of these speech errors often result in real words, not the right word, but real words, yet they're not what we would consider malapropisms. Mike, I'll bet that any minute now you're going to stop telling me what isn't a malapropism (laughs) and, you know, maybe tell me what is. Well, any minute, but not this minute. I want to mention one more kind of speech error that we're not talking about when we're talking about malapropisms, and this is when you choose the wrong word but it's related semantically to the one that you're intending. So maybe you say arm when you mean leg, or hot when you mean cold, or you choose something in the same category as something else, like an article of clothing. You say belt when you really mean tie. So, Mike, I get intuitively why these things don't constitute the kind of speech error that Mrs. Malaprop was famous for, but I don't quite have the definition Is there a rule that defines what constitutes a bona fide malapropism? I just want to mention that all of these errors we just talked about, the interference that's causing you to say the wrong word is more or less apparent, right? There's not a lot of mystery as to why that particular erroneous word came out, or at least we can make a good case for why. All of these various errors are interesting, and, you know, maybe we'll talk about them on some future episode, but they're not what we would consider a proper malapropism. So what is? Well, first of all, as you alluded to, the word malapropism comes from the name of a character in an 18th century play called The Rivals by a guy named Richard Sheridan. There's a character in the play named Mrs. Malaprop. Her name, Malaprop, translates from the French as kind of inappropriate. And she's always using the wrong word. So, for example, she uses the word epitaphs, when she means epithets. And she uses the word allegory when she means alligator, which I think is <laughs> kind of a funny one. That sort of speech error is now known as a malaprop or a malapropism. Yeah. Mrs. Garfield says uh, burglar when she means bagel. And once um, famously asked somebody, where is the nearest toaster's choice? By which, of course, <laughs> she meant Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> How did the person answer that? 
why he was flummoxed, Mike. And there was an argument that ensued because she couldn't believe someone would not know where in the neighborhood resided the toaster's choice. <laughs> the confusion of a non-native English speaker notwithstanding, there are a couple of researchers, David Fay and Ann Cutler, who compiled a list of a couple thousand speech errors from real life, where somebody said a word that was not the one that they intended. They then culled from this list all of the errors that we just talked about, the anticipations, the blends, the semantically related ones. They took all of these out and were left with about 200 or so that they considered true malapropisms. Mm -hmm. For example, and these are real examples from their list, saying determination when the person meant denomination or equivocal for equivalent, inoculation for inauguration, ludicrous for lucrative. And they came up with what they called the three major characteristics of malapropisms in general. And I'll just sort of paraphrase them. First, the word that you mistakenly say is a real word, not the right word, but not a nonsense word. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it makes sense in context. It doesn't mean the sentence is actually intelligible. It just means the word that you're using is a real word. Second, the word you say and the word you mean to say don't appear to be related in meaning. And third, the two words are related in some significant way in pronunciation. So, so far, it seems that you did a good job in contriving malapropisms for your character Don Donato to say in your book. But... I'm sorry, Mike, what book is that? (laughs) Why a comedic crime novel called Bedfellows, available in stores tomorrow. Just wondered. Thanks for clearing that up. But a linguist might spot your malapropisms as fakes, as not having occurred truly inadvertently in real life. And I'll tell you why, but first I want to take a short break to talk about our sponsor, audible.com. If you've been using the internet since the mid-late 1990s, you might remember that Audible is one of the pioneers in audio information, audio entertainment, digital content that you can get over the internet. They've been building up their catalog for nearly 15 years now, and they have well over 100,000 audiobooks that you can listen to while exercising, while driving. If you have any inclination at all to try audiobooks and never have, I really urge you to do so. It can really change the way you think about reading. And There's no risk with Audible. You get a free 30-day trial membership and one free audiobook of your choice if you visit audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. I think I mentioned once before on this podcast that my wife and I listened to Dreams from My Father by Barack Obama on audiobook. It being a political season and very close to the election, I think it's a really great listen, whatever your politics are. An Audible membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. Use that URL so Audible knows that you're a Lexicon Valley listener. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay. Where were we? Well, uh, we were getting to the part where you were going to tell me why I suck at inventing malapropisms. (laughs) Oh, right. Okay, so the first thing that David Fay and Ann Cutler noticed when they analyzed their list of about 200 malapropisms is that in 99% of the cases, 
the word erroneously spoken and the intended word were the same part of speech. So if we look at one of the examples that we mentioned from Bedfellows, Don Donato says fasciitis, a noun, when he means facetious, an adjective. Ah. That's really rare, according to Faye and Cutler's data. So rare that it only happened once or twice in their entire list of 200. Now, another thing that they noticed was that 87% of the time, the two words had the same number of syllables. So if we look at the other example from Bedfellows that we mentioned, Don Donato says halva instead of Hezbollah. Both are nouns, but halva has two and Hezbollah three syllables. It's not as rare for that to be the case, but it's unlikely. Huh. That's concerning. On the other hand, it's still a zany romp through an unexpected (laughs) cast of characters, right? Yeah, it is. And to be fair, most of your readers will probably not be linguists, and even the ones that are might not know this. Now, I want to ask you this. The reason Don Donato, my character, makes these mistakes is that while he's not stupid, you come to discover that he's actually, in many ways, extremely bright, he is significantly undereducated and, and ignorant. And when I hear malaprops, I don't associate them with speech errors. I associate them with knowledge errors. And I kind of smirk to myself because I'm not a good person. The evidence actually suggests that you're probably wrong about that. I mean, everybody makes malapropisms, people who are knowledgeable, people who are not knowledgeable. And in fact, there is evidence that suggests that people who talk faster tend to make more malapropisms than slower talkers. Hmm. It's a common misperception that it's just about ignorance, but it's often used in that way. That's how it was used by Sheridan to depict Mrs. Malaprop, somebody who was reaching intellectually above her station. Aha. Uh-huh. That's exactly, exactly it. That's exactly what I'm going for. Just trying too hard and coming off as even ditzier than she actually was. Yeah, and that's how it was used in All in the Family. Archie Bunker was famous for making malapropisms. One of my favorites was when he said, we need a few laughs to break up the monogamy. (laughs) Yeah, that's classic Archie Bunker. Let's just get back to where we were before. I mentioned that 87% of the malapropisms that Faye and Cutler studied had the same number of syllables as the intended word. Of those... 98% had the same stress pattern. So let's take a couple of examples from real life. Years ago, I worked in a restaurant, and my boss, the owner, had a penchant for making malapropisms. One day, he was talking to me about rearranging some of the chairs in the restaurant. And he said something like, well, if we move those over there, then it'll form a triangle. And that aisle right there, that'll be the hypothesis of the triangle. (laughs) (laughs) What he meant, of course, was the hypotenuse of the triangle. But you can see that's a perfect malapropism, as Faye and Cutler describe. Both are nouns, both four syllables, both with the stress on the second syllable. Same guy, different occasion. He's explaining to a customer various menu combinations that you can put together. And he runs through a few of them and he then says, and other permeations like that. What he meant was other permutations. But again, perfect malapropism. Both are nouns, both are four syllables, and both have the stress on the third syllable in this case. Yeah, well, so as it turns out, Mike, in addition to not knowing anything about 
mob life, mattress discounting, chiropractic, and the street map of Brooklyn, I didn't know how to work a malapropism. That's why they call it a novel. You made it up. I did. I made it up, although I had help. Um, God was my co-pilot and Google was my co-author. So, well, I mean, I think one of the reasons that, you know, you may not have gotten malaprops right, if you look at the data, is because you were interested in malapropisms for their comedic value, right? So you chose words that sounded funny to you. Of course, linguists are interested in malapropisms and speech errors in general for a different reason. I had a recent conversation with a guy named Michael Arard, who's a journalist and a linguist who wrote a book several years ago, a very popular book called Um, Slips, Stumbles, and Verbal Blunders and What They Mean. And I asked him why linguists are so enamored of speech errors like malapropisms. And here's what he said. They're interested in using slips of the tongue to essentially reverse engineer the language processes and try to figure out how meaning and words and strings of sounds in our heads gets put together in what stages in order for us to pronounce them. So from the very first moment of trying to formulate an idea to actually speaking it, it takes about 600 milliseconds, which seems kind of long to me. Linguists are interested in what happens in that 600 milliseconds. So what he's saying is that uh, actually speech errors are giving linguists clues to how speech works when it's working right. Yeah, exactly. This reverse engineering that he's talking about is basically the theory that in order to figure out how something works, you investigate how it fails. So if we want to learn more about how we produce speech, maybe we should look at how it is that we fail in producing the intended speech. So imagine that there's a mechanism in your head that's responsible for producing speech. This mechanism is making these moment-to-moment, real-time decisions about which specific words to use. Fay and Cutler theorized that this hypothetical mechanism has to know at least two things about a word before you actually use it. One, is it the right part of speech that you need for this point in the sentence? And two, does it have the right meaning? This mechanism has to constantly choose words from what linguists call your mental lexicon, the dictionary in your head, using those two major criteria. So with that in mind, Faye and Cutler posed the question, what is this mental dictionary like? Well, I got to tell you, uh, my mental dictionary is a mess. It's almost like the pages (laughs) are all out of order. And even though I make a living on the radio thinking up words and saying them out loud, I increasingly find myself having difficulty summoning the word in that 600 milliseconds. Every now and then I, get, I catch myself. No, I don't catch myself. Other people catch me using the wrong word. Well, here's the theory in a nutshell that Faye and Cutler came up with. They said, okay, when you're talking, you use these two criteria, part of speech and meaning, to choose words from your mental dictionary and then convert those words into sounds. So maybe I know I'm looking for a noun at this point in the sentence. It's that thing that people have in their backyard that kids bounce up and down on. I think it's really dangerous. Oh, right, it's a trampoline. And then I say the word trampoline. Now, of course, that's all happening in you know fractions of a second. But part of speech and meaning are the input. The sound trampoline is the output. But when you're listening to someone else talk, 
that process works in reverse, ostensibly, right? The input is the sound trampoline, and then you convert that in your head to, oh, that's that thing, that noun that kids like to jump up and down on. Yes, go on. Okay. Now, if you were going to design a mental lexicon, a mental dictionary that was really good for retrieving words for speaking, it would probably look like a thesaurus, right, with words grouped by meaning. Mm -hmm. That would be great. But if you were designing a mental lexicon that was really good for comprehending, for listening, it would group words more by the way they sound, since that's all you really have to go on when you're listening to someone. If I understand what you're saying about what Faye and Cutler are saying, it's that our mental lexicons are organized less for word retrieval and speech than they are for listening and comprehension. And they see malapropisms as evidence for that conclusion, where in speech we're grabbing just perhaps a microsecond too quickly a sound-alike word instead of the word we actually mean. Yeah, exactly. Words that sound alike so much so that they tend to have the same number of syllables and the same stress pattern. Like picking the wrong suspect out of a lineup based on superficial similarities in physiognomy. Yeah, and so why would it be that our mental dictionaries are organized much more optimally for comprehending than for speaking? I mean, wouldn't it be great if our mental lexicon was like a thesaurus, then we would all be such fluid, fantastic talkers. Right. That's a very good question. It was the one I would have asked. What's the answer? (laughs) Well, again, and this is, of course, you know, theory. Fane Cutler suggests that it makes sense that our mental lexicon would be arranged optimally for comprehending what other people are saying, because there is often ambient competing noise or other people talking nearby, and our brains need to quickly identify the right sounds and compare them to things that sound like them. Whereas, you know, when we're talking, we're not necessarily competing with other noises. We can form the words that we want to form. Of course, sometimes we screw up. Hmm. I I get all that. And the theory suggests that malapropisms are related to retrieval error. But I I just – it's hard for me to buy that the incidence of malapropisms isn't greater in people trying to play vocabulary-wise out of their weight class. Can I play you something that's been driving me crazy for about 20 years? (laughs) (laughs) That long? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And the reason it's that long is because it's from maybe my favorite film, one of the greatest films ever made. It's a flaw, and it's kind of like the off stitch in a quilt put there on purpose so as not to mock God's perfection. Listen. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny. Okay, did you hear that, Mike? Mm -hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Right? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with that picture? Inequities. Right. The word he was groping for was iniquities, which means evils, acts of evil. And it doesn't mean, you know, general unfairness. (laughs) There's about two things that Tarantino got wrong in Pulp Fiction, and one was not catching that in Samuel L. Jackson's soliloquies 
I think four times in the film, he, we hear the same mistake, and it drives me up a wall. And if I thought Tarantino were a mega genius instead of an ultra genius, I would say he did it on purpose to illustrate the intellectual pretension of this character played by Samuel L. Jackson, Jules. But no, I think Jackson just blew the line four times. Let's assume that it was done on purpose and that it was written into the script. Again, like your malapropisms with Don Donato, those are contrived, right? Those are made up. But if you look at the full data set from Faye and Cutler, and these again are real-life malapropisms that David Faye had collected over time, the vast majority of them are word pairs that any average English speaker would know. You know, I read uh, some of them to you before. I think I used some of the ones that had, quote, harder words in them. But some of them are radio for radiator, result for regard, inclusion for intrusion. I mean, these are not 50-cent words. These are everyday words. Linking for lurking, camera for calendar. Garfield, Garfield. My driver's license is expiring. We have to go to the DVR. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, you really like to make fun of immigrants, don't you? (laughs) Uh, Only those related to me by at least marriage. (laughs) Well, I mean, the point is, I think that, you know, and the evidence isn't fully in on this, but I think there probably is some truth to the fact that if you're not as familiar with the words that you're using, then you might be more apt to kind of reach for the wrong one, so to speak, right? When you're reaching into your mental lexicon and choosing something that you know has this cadence, has this syllable count, has this stress pattern, you know that intuitively because you've used the word before. I don't want to tell you how to, you know, rewrite the second printing of Bedfellows, but if you were going to make the character more true to life and speak of Faye Cutler-esque malapropism, then you might have him say factitious instead of facetious or fascistic, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which kind of goes with him being a mob boss. Yeah, actually, I I toyed with fascistic as a matter of fact. Uh, I just thought fasciitis was funnier. Or to get back to my original point, semi-funnier. Well, it turns out that Don Donato is not the only one reaching above his intellectual station. (laughs) Yeah, as always, Mike, thank you so much. (laughs) So very much. Your respect touches me profoundly. (laughs) All right. If you want to suggest other, even better malapropisms for facetious, you can reach us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Michael Arard, author of Um, Slips, Stumbles, and Verbal Blunders and What They Mean. Speaking of books, Bedfellows by Bob Garfield is out tomorrow, October 16th. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey, we done here? We're done, Bob. See you later, allegory.